Hello to the listeners of Rivercast. Please stay tuned to the end of this podcast for information concerning our show's move to a new server and website. This is information that you'll need to know. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 34. Hutchinson, will you lend me sixpence? I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today from Penshurst, Kent, in the UK, is Ben Holm. From Neath in Wales is Gareth Williams. From Edmonton, Alberta, Canada is Robert McLaughlin. From Charlottesville, Virginia is Ali Ryder. Chris Scott is coming to us from Ramsgate, Kent, in the UK. And Howard Brown is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thanks, everybody, for being on the show today. George Hutchison claimed to have seen Mary Kelly at 2 a.m. on the morning of her murder in the company of a well-dressed Toff who has acquired the moniker Astrakhan Man. Hutchison came forward three days after the murder to give his statement to the police. Now, putting aside the early morning sighting of Kelly by Carolyn Maxwell, George Hutchison is the last person to claim to see Kelly alive, making him an important, if short-lived, contemporary witness to the crime. But it was George Hutchison himself who was possibly the only suspicious person seen around the entrance to Miller's Court on the morning of Kelly's murder, being the man seen loitering about by Sarah Lewis, making him, to some researchers, a strong suspect in Kelly's murder. Now... Robert McLaughlin will refresh our memory of the events as it relates to George Hutchison, although this was touched upon on a previous episode, um, Mary Kelly Part 1. George Hutchison's suspect candidacy will be the focus of today's show. So take it away, Robert. Yeah, Hutchinson, uh, he was uh, returning home from uh, Romford, and he was staying at uh, the Victoria home in Commercial Street. And he came back uh, to Spitalfields uh, too late uh, to gain entrance, um, so he was wandering around. He passed uh, Thrall Street. Uh, this was just b- before 2 in the morning. And just before reaching Flower and Dean Street, he ran into Mary Kelly. And he uh, uh, said later in, in a statement that he had known Kelly for three years. And uh, she said, uh, Hutchinson, will you lend me a sixpence? And he said, I can't. You know, I've uh, spent all my money down in Romford. And uh, she toddled off saying, I must go find some money. And she headed towards Thrall Street. Um, Hutchinson saw a man uh, approach Kelly. Uh, he tapped her on the shoulder. Uh, he said something. Uh, they both started laughing. Kelly supposedly said something, all right. And then the man said, you'll be all right for what I've told you. Uh, he put his hand on her shoulder again. And uh, he had a small uh, parcel with him uh, wrapped up in American cloth. Um, they started walking uh, towards Commercial Street, and uh, outside the Queen's Head Public House, uh, Hutchinson was standing outside, um, underneath a lamp, and uh, he watched uh, the couple very closely as uh, they came by. In fact, he, he ducked down so he could get a good look at the man. 
Uh, he said the man was uh, respectable in appearance. Uh, he had a long dark coat with an astrakhan collar and cuffs, a dark jacket and trousers, a light waistcoat, a dark felt hat turned down in the middle, a lined collar with a black tie and a horseshoe pin, uh, button boots and gaiters, a thick uh, gold watch and chain with a, ro- uh, with a red stone seal. He's about 34, 35, 5 foot 6, pale complexion, uh, dark hair and eyelashes, slight mustache turned up at each end. The man looked sternly back at Hutchinson as he walked by. And uh, Hutchinson followed Kelly and the man into uh, Dorset Street. The man uh, and uh, Mary Jane Kelly, they stood at the, the entrance to the court. We don't know for how long. She said something like, all right, dear, come along. You'll be comfortable. The man placed an arm on his shoulder, gave her a kiss. Uh, she had apparently lost her handkerchief, and he produced a red handkerchief and uh, gave it to her. There's a few discrepancies between Hutchinson's police statement and the one he gave to the press, but actually not too many on the description of the man. Just just minor things like uh, his complexion, just a few other points, uh, like his mustache was heavy in, in the press and it was, uh, I think, light in the police statement. Hutchinson, uh, he, waited, uh, he waited across the street at uh, number 17, uh, across, one of Crossingham's lodging houses. Uh, the man, Nor Kelly, uh, came out and he left at about uh, 3 a.m. Uh, after waiting, he says, for about 45 minutes. Uh, Sarah Lewis uh, came by at uh, 2.30 a.m. into Dorset Street, and she saw a man standing opposite of Miller's Court, uh, sort of a stout man, not very tall, uh, with a wide-awake hat, and this presumably was Hutchinson. But anyway, that's the, the brief uh, rundown of, of uh, Hutchinson and what he saw that night. Ben Holm believes that George Hutchison is responsible for the murder of Mary Kelly. And also, by extension, he believes that George Hutchison is Jack the Ripper. So, Ben, why don't you take us through the idea that you have that uh, George Hutchison is the Ripper? Well, one of the things I've discovered from these podcasts and elsewhere is that there are potentially more pressing and more interesting questions than who done it, but... When we do contemplate the killer's identity, the most common response you get from most people is that he was probably an unknown local man from the East End. Now, this I'd agree with, but I would argue that of all the viable local non-entities in the district, only one behaves suspiciously near a crime scene at a time crucial to the murder and who probably lied about his reason for being there. Now, he lived in the heart of the murder district and was known to the police as George Hutchinson. Now, as Rob points out, uh, it transpired at the Kelly inquest that Sarah Lewis had seen a man standing against the lodging house, Crossingham's, opposite Miller's Court at 2.30 a.m. on the morning of her death. He was stout, not tall, and wore a black, wide-awake hat. He was apparently watching and waiting for someone. Now, as soon as that information became publicly, public knowledge, as soon as it was publicly divulged, Hutchinson approached the police at 6 p.m. on the 12th of November and claimed that he did precisely that. You know, he watched and waited for someone at 2.30 a.m. opposite the court. You know, he was essentially assuming the identity of the man Lewis saw. Now, whether he was the killer or not, that suggests very strongly to me that he came forward with a demonstrably bogus account after discovering that he'd been seen by an independent witness, a real witness, near the crime scene and that he used this Mr. Astrakhan character as a means of both legitimizing his presence and behavior, as seen by Lewis, 
and also deflecting suspicion in a conveniently false direction, which, is, which was the already scapegoated sort of sinister Jewish cloth with obligatory black, uh, black parcel, eight inches long. Ooh, knife-shaped. Now, could he have done all that without being the killer? Well, yes, the answer is to that is yes, of course he could have done. But on the other hand, there have been examples of other serial killers coming forward for similar reasons. Well, my thought would be that this was not the first sighting of a person with Mary Kelly or a person standing in a court near a, a, a crime scene. Almost every single uh, murder scene has somebody seeing somebody either with the victim or standing in the vicinity. So the idea that he would have come forward just because someone saw, quote-unquote, him standing there and he was suddenly <laughs> over fear of having been seen seems kind of a, a, a specious reasoning. There were loads of witness testimony about seeing such and such a man or such and such a man. So why would he, if it was actually, if he was Jack the Ripper, which obviously I don't believe he was and I don't believe he was the killer of Mary Kelly, why would he not have come forward every other time there was a witness testimony of having seen somebody standing near a crime scene or with a victim? It just doesn't seem to logically flow. This one time he's suddenly compelled to come forward and bring himself to the notice of the police when all the other times he allowed those witness you know, sightings to pass without comment. I think, uh, uh, Ali, on that point, I mean, <clears throat> there is a slight difference in the, uh, in the Hutchinson-Kelly scenario compared to the rest. Uh, if you take the other uh, uh, canonical or Ripper murders, um, uh, starting with uh, Polly Nichols, I mean, there were no witnesses or no material witnesses uh, to her death, um, at least no one was seen with her Im immediately before her death. Uh, and like the next murder, Annie Chapman, when uh, Mrs. Long passes, but she only sees the back of the man um, allegedly standing with Annie Chapman, uh, and she describes him as a foreigner uh, somehow. Um, uh, and then you go to Stride, uh, you've got Israel Schwartz, who's probably the, the, the strongest witness there, who sees this broad-shouldered man down in um, St. George's East, down in Burner Street, which is quite some distance away from, uh, from the Victoria home where, where Hutchinson lived. And then you've got Mitre Square, where three Jewish witnesses, uh, the best of whom is uh, Joseph Lavender, who gets a, a jolly good look of the, the man standing with Catherine Eddowes. He's um, a, a rather respectable Jewish tradesman who lives out in Dalston, which is about, uh, I guess, two and a half miles north of, uh, of Mitre Square, and by extension about two miles north of Dorset Street and uh, Wentworth Street uh, and commercial street where, uh, commercial road, I beg your pardon, where the Victoria home was located. Um, when you get to Kelly, however, um, she lives um, literally two or three blocks, uh, you know, tens of yards north of uh, the Victoria home where uh, Hutchinson lived. Uh, so there may be a case here for saying that, you know, this was a bit close to his own doorstep. And, uh, you know, he could have felt rather uncomfortable, especially given that since the previous murder, uh, when there was a bit of a lull in, in, in the Ripper series, um, you know, the murder of Eddowes, where there was this large police sweep that went through all the local lodging houses in the area. And, you know, lo and behold, the, the Ripper sort of stays quiet for five weeks or whatever it is uh, before striking again. Um, and so in this scenario where, 
you know, Hutchinson is the Ripper, then he's guilty of dirtying his own doorstep here, maybe. That would be, you know, one explanation for it, possibly. Absolutely, and, and time and time again we learn from other serial cases that the serial killer will change his tactic as the police <laughs> change theirs. For example, I mean, at the uh, Edo's inquest, the statement, the uh, description, rather, of Joseph Lemendi was suppressed, and that's something that hadn't happened before. It was a new thing. Crawford, the solicitor, decided to suppress it. What we had, what um, divulged from the, uh, the Edo's inquest was simply that he was, the man was rough and shabby and had a peak cap. Now, uh, the killer, whoever he was, reading this would think, well, you know, why have they suppressed it? It says the solicitor was saying that uh, we'd rather not divulge this at this, at this time. But then by October the 19th, the full description is finally released. Now, Hutchinson, if he was the killer, would have been perturbed by that, I think. He would have been thinking, well, they suppressed Leven's description at the last murder. What if they try that tactic again? And in certain other cases as well, he simply couldn't have come forward. For example, let's assume he was uh, Israel Schwartz's man, the broad-shouldered individual. Obviously, he can't come forward and say, yes, that was me, you know, assaulting Liz Stride, and yes, that was me hurling anti-Semitic insults. I mean, uh, he's, you know, he, he, he couldn't come forward. Uh, Why couldn't he? I mean, uh, hurling anti-Semitic insults isn't exactly, uh, you know, lighting a cigarette or whatever on the street, these kinds of things. They're not... I mean, assaulting Liz Stride, that's one thing, but he could have, you know, fobbed that off with, you know, I tried to make a transaction with her, and she refused me, and I tossed her aside and went on my way. Uh, it just seems to me that there's all these excuses made for why he would have done it or why he would not have done it in so far as this. And we're talking about the East End, which has hundreds of, you know, excuse me, hundreds or thousands of people in that couple of block radius. So it isn't necessarily as if every single person had to have known and that dirtying his doorstep uh, would have been a sufficient reason if he didn't know the woman personally. She didn't say, oh, I saw George Hutchinson standing outside. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you're quite right there, Ali, in picking up the She the saw fact a man. That, uh, yeah, but, you know, we're talking about an area of, of, of a huge population density, and uh, you're quite right in saying that a couple of blocks away uh, might uh, entail, what, five or 6,000 people in all. So it was hard, hardly like, you know, uh, around the corner in, in, in some quaint little Kentish village. You may as well have been in a, in a totally different part of town. Um, but having said that, the papers were full of some rather spurious testimony, some of it rehashed, uh, probably Sarah Lewis's, but rebadged uh, variously as, 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 as Mrs. Kennedy and, uh, uh, and other sort of local snoops. Um, so, you know, for a start now, you've got, you've got local Caucasian, if you like, or Indigenous Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Irish witnesses uh, who report seeing Kelly with a man or men uh, on the night of her death. Uh, so, again, that's slightly different from anonymous, newly immigrant Israel Schwartz uh, seeing a block down, down in St. George's East. So there, there is a slight difference in the scenario here, in that there were local witnesses, in that Hutchinson himself claims to have known Mary Kelly. Uh, and if that were the case, and he lived only a few blocks away, then it's conceivable that he may have visited her. Uh, and if he visited her, he may have been known to people who hung around Miller's Court. So well, under this scenario, uh, do you believe, Ben or Gareth for that matter, that, that um, Hutchison was the man seen by Lavenda 
with Catherine Eddowes moments before her murder? And if mm. so, it seems like kind of like going off of what Allie was saying. Sarah Lewis's description of, of um, the, white, the man with the white wake hat outside Crossingham's uh, is is not nearly as detailed as the description uh, given by Lavenda, although he said that he wouldn't be able to identify the man again. If Hutchison was that man, why wouldn't he have come forward after the murder of Catherine Eddowes rather than the murder of Mary Kelly? Um, wh- why was he so concerned with the very vague witness description given by Sarah Lewis as opposed to uh, the one um, outside of Mitre Square? Uh, the tricky thing about uh, the Levend sighting is that it happened 10 minutes before the body of Catherine Edwards was, was discovered. So that didn't le- really leave him room to sort of incorporate a kind of Mr. Astrakhan-like character. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't say, I was just a witness, that, yes, that was me, but somebody else arrived afterwards. They did, the, the timing was, it didn't really allow for a sort of Astrakhan-like character to come in and uh, be the supposed murderer. And also, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, Hutchinson didn't know that Sarah Lewis's testimony was vague. Uh, Joseph Levin's testimony was very vague at the Edo's inquest, but that was, uh, that was suppressed, that was, that was withheld, only to appear in all its kind of glorious detail weeks later. And so uppermost in his mind would be, well, what if this happens again? You know, what if, uh, what if Lewis's testimony, like Levin's, had been, in, had been suppressed? So that would... Uh, account for a change in tactics as the police change theirs. And it's, uh, it's not as if uh, other serial killers, you know, who have resorted to this and similar strategies, it's not as if they come forward after every murder either. I mean, I mean, they just come forward in response to one of them. Can you name a single serial killer who has been completely unknown to the police insofar as a, a series of murders who has independently, without ever being questioned by the police or being called to the attention of the police, went forward and gave a witness testimony and said, yes, I was at the scene of the crime at this time? Oh, yeah, plenty, yeah. John, John Eric Armstrong, prostitute killer from Detroit, came forward as a helpful witness and informer after learning he'd been seen at the crime scene of Wendy Jordan. Now, in his case, he actually came forward claiming to have discovered the body. Now, he was seen, he was seen there by other witnesses, so was com- compelled to vindicate his presence. Uh, you know, it's not me because I've contacted you, and of course I wouldn't do that if I was really the killer. Uh, and then we had Ian Huntley doing precisely the same thing, and then uh, a generous gentleman on the uh, casebook mentioned uh, the case of uh, Joseph Kowadatic, who did a similar thing. So yes, there's, cer- there's certainly examples. I mean, invariably, you're not going to find absolute congruity and sort of like a, a, a mirror-like image. I mean, I mean, otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be different. They'd be the same thing. But um, I think it's worth bearing, you know, noticing these comparisons where they, uh, where they occur. And uh, I, I think the ones I mentioned certainly qualify on that score. Can I, can I jump in here? Because I've got um, one question. I, I, I think it's um, in, because she's become such a linchpin in this um, scenario, with, I do have problems with the testimony of Sarah Lewis in that I think it's important for folks who are not perhaps, you know, conversant with the minutiae of the case to realise that the, the Kelly inquest was three days after the murder. The murder was on the 9th, the inquest on the 12th. The initial police statement that Sarah Lewis made, which was on the day of the murder, not only was there no description of the man she saw in Dorset Street, but she specifically said that she couldn't describe him. And there is also a note in the police statement, which I admit was subsequently deleted, 
that the man she saw in Dorset Street was talking to a female. So right, I wonder how... That, yes, that's right. But, but Lewis, Lewis does specifically say in her 9th of November statement that she could not describe the man. So, you know, in the, the, the wide-awake hat and the, the not-tall-but-stout somehow has developed over the three days. And I think, you know, it, it's as though the, the statement had firmed up. But, you know, other little things, like, for example, in the... In the inquest testimony, she says specifically that she entered the court at 2.30. But in her initial police statement, which was on the day of the murder, she just says between 2 and 3. So, you know, vagaries have become firmer. But I'd, I just wonder how we can reconcile the fact that on the day of the murder, she said she couldn't describe him. And then three days later, we have this admittedly vague, but obviously much more specific description. Yeah, it was slightly worrying, isn't it? It's sort of memory improving after a while. Sorry, go on, Gareth. Well, just, I was just going to say, it, it, it kind of pales into insignificance compared to um, Hutchinson's memory after three days. Absolutely, it's incredible. I mean. But, you know, Chris, Chris, Chris raises a valid point, um, although I, I suppose, uh, if, if I may speak for Ben here, uh, you know, ben, Ben's sort of slant on that would be that, uh, you know, given the suppression of the description uh, given by Lavenda, that, you know, this... This this vague description by Sarah Lewis would not have been known to Hutchinson. Um, right, because Hutchinson would not have been privy to the police statement. You know, he would he could only go on what was in the public domain. And so, yes, you're quite right, Gareth. He wouldn't have known that uh, that the police statement description was vague or non-existent. He would only have been mindful of what had occurred previously with Lavender and thought, hang on, this could happen again, you know. And it needn't, have, it needn't be also a sort of self-preservation thing. Quite often it can be sort of fishing for information, uh, combined with a bit of characteristic serial killer bravado, for instance. I mean, it's, um, I think self-preservation certainly played a part, but it, it might not have been the only sole motivating factor. It's interesting that Aberline never, in his report... <coughs> connected Hutchison with the person seen by Sarah Lewis. Do you believe that, that maybe they didn't even make the connection between her witness sighting and, and his statement? It's possible it's possible, but on, on the other hand, it might have been one of the it might have been the initial reason for Abeline believing it. Sort of, uh, oh, it's, it's okay. I mean, it might, it might sound a bit uh, dodgy, but it's okay. It's all true. We know that because Sarah Lewis saw somebody uh, opposite the court at this time, and, uh, and that's corroborated. So, I mean, that might have occurred to, um, to Avalon. That might have been one of the, the, the initial reasons um, for his faith in Hutchinson's uh, credibility. Yeah, and, and it's also pretty possible that, I mean, here you have a man standing outside of a lodging house, a lodging house full of hundreds of men. I wonder, you know, Chris says that the witness description was minuscule at best initially by Sarah Lewis. Do you think that the police bothered to question residents of Crossingham's lodging house to see if they were standing outside? I mean, how much emphasis do we think that the police even put on this witness sighting? Because you had said that George would have gone to the police maybe in an effort to fish for information. Everything, everything, points, everything points to the police not being the least bit concerned. Of, about this person supposedly seen by Sarah Lewis. Absolutely, and, and, and I mean, it, which, in which case, and, and the, the loiterer was suspicious, or perhaps the killer, whether he was Hutchinson or not, it was certainly to his advantage. I think one of the reasons they were less interested in the wide-awake suspect is because Lewis had already described somebody else. She mentioned uh, the Wednesday previously uh, she'd encountered this 
rather sinister gentleman on Bethel Green Road, uh, whom she claimed to have seen again at the corner of the Britannia. And when you look at her <coughs> inquest statement, the wide awake man becomes almost like an afterthought. It was, oh, you know, oh, the, the guy I saw from Wednesday, he was there, very scary, I was worried about him. Oh, and yes, there was this, this other bloke as well, opposite the court. Right. The fact that the chap from Wednesday, the, the, the Bethnal Green botherer, the fact that he was apparently on hand near the Britannia may have lessened the, the police interest attached to the wide awake man. Uh, in which case, you know, that was, that was pretty advantageous for the wide awake man if he was the killer. There's one interesting aspect of Hutchinson's testimony. Um, I mean, as, uh, as Robert said earlier, he... He kind of hung around for 45 minutes. Um, perhaps we can talk about why he may have done that a bit later. Uh, but he hangs around um, outside Crossingham's for uh, 45 minutes. He goes into Miller's courts. Um, but he says that during this rather strange sort of sentry duty episode, he, uh, at least in his, in his newspaper statement, he says that he saw one man go into uh, a lodging house in Dorset Street while he was there. Now... Yes, as, as, as John has pointed out, you know, there, there were hundreds of men and women uh, living in lodge, lodging houses in Dorset Street. But uh, I wonder whether the man he saw going into the, into the lodging house was the, the same man with the wide awake that uh, Sarah Lewis had seen when she arrived at 2.30, in which case that raises a question about the timing of Hutchinson's sighting and Lewis's sighting. Because if the man she saw was going into the lodging house just as... Um, uh, Mr. Astrakhan and Kelly were coming around the corner, followed by uh, Mr. Hutchinson. Then that means that the incident happened later than Hutchinson uh, uh, said to the police. And, Just a thought. And Hutchinson never uh, says that he saw Sarah Lewis in his oh, statement. Which, which, which again would tell you with that, you know, because yeah. if Hutchinson arrives after Lewis, then the, the man that she sees could be the man that Hutchinson then sees going into a lodging house in Dorset Street. Uh, and all of a sudden, the time frame shifts forward by half an hour. The interesting congruity for me is the, is the behaviour. It's not just the location of, of the chap who was uh, opposite Miller's court, it's the behaviour. Uh, Lewis describes him as being uh, apparently preoccupied with the court. He was apparently watching and waiting for someone. Uh, and it's the fact that Hutchinson says he was doing precisely that, which seems to establish some sort of congruity between the two, uh, you know, between, between Hutchinson's claims and that of, uh, and that of Lewis with regard to the wide awake man. It's not just a question of location, because, yes, there were lots of people outside Crossingham's lodging house, but the, the chap who Lewis was talking about wasn't really interested in the lodging house. He was standing there when he could have been inside getting warm, but he was interested uh, in Miller's court, as was Hutchinson, as per his claim. So that's why I, 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 I personally would tend to identify Hutchinson with the, with the loitering man. Ben, let me ask you. Sorry, let me ask you a question. How how do you explain the three day delay? If Hutchinson was skint on the night that he saw Kelly, how did he make his toss for, for three days? How would you um, explain that? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I, the simplest explanation to that, Howard, is that he uh, simply wasn't telling the truth about not having uh, enough money. That's one of the things I find slightly dodgy about about the Romford thing as well. I mean. Uh, would he, would he hoop it all the way from Romford in miserable weather conditions in the certainty that he'd have no money to pay for his lodgings, which had closed by 12 a.m. anyway? And he says that he's uh, out of work. He says that he's currently out of work, but also that he's, a, he's usually a resident of the Victoria home. Now, unfortunately, the two are incompatible. Uh, if he was usually a resident of the Victoria home, he can't have been out of work for any considerable time at all. 
because uh, it was four pence a night to get into the uh, to get into the uh, Victoria home. So, so is it possible, to, in your opinion, that he had enough money for his DOS and simply told Kelly that he was skinned? That he Absolutely. had no money to spare for Kelly? Okay. Yeah. I th- and also, another thing that... Or that, that, he, that his whole statement's a lie. I mean, obviously. I mean, taking Ben's side, what parts are we to believe and what parts are we to toss out? I think I think also, I'm certainly some press accounts that... Um, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's important to bear in mind that some of these so-called lodging houses, I mean, we, we have absolutely no way of knowing how long Hutchinson had been there or how long he stayed there after the murder. Some, some of these so-called lodging houses, which we tend to think of as full of vagrants and uh, transients, were actually, for some people, were fairly long-term residences. Certainly some press accounts I've read, some of the inmates or residents didn't, didn't pay nightly. They would actually pay... You know, certain periods they would pay a week in advance or, or even more. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's no way of knowing that um, Hutchinson was actually staying there paying on a nightly basis. I mean, he may have paid a week in advance, and the only reason he couldn't get in was because he'd been locked out. Victoria Home had quite an interesting kind of setup as far as admittance went. If he had he, tickets were on sale, daily passes and weekly passes, if he'd purchased a weekly pass, he could have got in at, at any time of the night, whether he was coming back from Rumford or, you know, Timbuktu. You know, oh, he, right. he, he, they'd let him in. However, if he didn't have a ticket, his last chance to pay for one was at 12 o'clock, tw- you know, 12 a.m. Oh, I'm with you. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, so basically, yeah, 12, 12 a.m. was the cutoff point for anyone not yeah. in possession of either a daily or weekly ticket, which makes Hutchinson's kind of foot slog from Rumford seem all the more... Odd in a way. I mean, no ticket, no pass, yeah. and um, it would have been closed by 12 a.m. anyway. So, um, but but the, yeah. the, door, the doors were the doors weren't physically locked at 12, and he couldn't have got in. Not not without not without a pass. No, after, after 12 a.m. it would be uh, if he didn't have a pass, it would be uh, it, it, it would be turned yeah. away. Okay. So, so yeah. in a in a yeah. way, sort of money would be kind of irrelevant in a way. Even if he did have money, if he hadn't got he hadn't hadn't purchased a ticket yeah. at 2 a.m. Yeah, and it was yeah. uh, it was walking around all night time. <laughs> yeah. What time? What time in the morning would have? Would, was it seven in the morning? You'd been able to gain access. Now that I don't know. That that's that's interesting. I, I think it was six. Um, I, seem, I seem to recall reading somewhere. Uh, it's either six or seven. Six I can't remember. I've read it somewhere because he specifically said he was wandering the streets of Whitechapel all night. And there's one account, and I can't remember where I read it, where he did actually say what time he was able to get in in the morning. And I thought it was seven, but it may have been six. That's interesting because if. If he did, if he was allowed in at sort of six or seven, would he have to have paid paid then, or would it would it have been a case of it's too it's too late by then, too early or whatever, however, whichever way you look at it? I don't know. Um, Again, I, 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 I suppose it depends also partly on how long. You know, as I said, there's no way of knowing how long a how long a term resident he was, and whether he'd been there days or weeks or months. We just don't know. Someone on the message boards had suggested that. Um, him being out all night on the night of the murder in and of itself may have been the reason for him to come forward and that going to Victoria home early in the morning following the murder, he would have been noticed that he was out all night and that would have uh, made him look suspicious to the fellow lodgers there. And so maybe to Yes, I noticed that. So what, what's your opinion on that? Now, you had said, again, this is on the casebook threads, people can read it, that you can see that in conjunction with his fear of what Sarah Lewis may or may not have said. 
Could you could you explain that a little bit to me? Because because I kind of think that that could have been a motivating factor. It could be substituted as a motive, as as opposed to the fear of what Sarah Lewis had to say. That's it. That's uh, that was a good suggestion by uh, uh, David, I think, uh, from from the message board. Yes, it, it it made sense to me. I mean, the lodgers noticing him coming in at a, at a strange time, which which uh, didn't ring true. Maybe they noticed something. Uh, that's that's something to consider alongside what I've suggested about Sarah Lewis. I, I've suggested that Sarah Lewis was the catalyst uh, for him coming forward, but it, it, that's not tantamount to saying that uh, it was the only reason, you know, I mean, there, there may have been various motiva- motivating factors, uh, self-preservation being one of them. Um, so, no, I think David's suggestion there made, uh, made, made great sense and something else to consider. And doesn't that also fall in line with what we know had occurred in previous murders and that the police went around to lodging houses to ask if they were aware of anyone who checked in at an odd hour or, you know, came in in the early morning or something? It wasn't that a part of the the police investigations. It it was. I mean, this so Hutchison's kind of giving himself as an example of just the type of uh, behavior that the police um, may have been wanting to be made aware of. Yes, although I, 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 I think I've said previously that uh, the, the police maybe should have been asking who didn't come in last night, rather you know, rather than who came in late, um, or who haven't you seen for a while. Uh, because uh, there were, uh, off the top of my head, I think between 75 and 100 registered lodging houses in that area. So, uh, you know, uh, the Ripper, if he lived in such a place, had, had you know, enough choice. I mean, he didn't have to uh, be, be missing from, uh, or, or be seen to be missing from any particular permanent base or semi-permanent base with so many transient lodging houses uh, that he could have turned into uh, without anyone batting an eyelid because hundreds of thousands of people did that on a daily basis. <clears throat> so just to be absent from uh, the Victoria home for one night, I don't think would have been uh, you know, particularly um, noticeable. I dare say it happened uh, a hell of a lot to a lot of people. The fact that the, the Ripper was a trophy taker and that he obviously took these organs serially again and again, how likely is it that he would have been able to um, keep up such a practice living in a transient sort of establishment such as a lodging house? Uh, well, I'll, I'll just say, you know, first of all, you know, the, the, the premise is that uh, Jack kept trophies with him, uh, you know, permanently. We don't know that. Uh, he, you know, the very act of, of degrading a woman to the extent where he's removed one of her exter- uh, internal organs and, and run away with it uh, might have been enough for him. Um, you know, he may have jettisoned his, his grisly package at the nearest opportunity. Um, he may even have eaten it, God forbid, um, like some sort of a weird form of Victorian sushi I mean, um, on his way home. So that's the one thing. Yeah, we don't know that he did take stuff back home with him. So he's like yeah. running through the streets <laughs> nibbling on a uterus as he goes? As one does. No, what, I, what, what, I, what, yeah, what, I mean, what I think Gareth means is taking it home, taking it to the already crowded mucky lodging house kitchen and cooking it i mean these i mean the, these lodgers when they went out for their meals it wasn't sort of choice cuts they were taking home it was kind of dodgy grimy sort of meat victuals really it was kind of you know the occasional heart or kidney i mean so he could he could have been cooking the un, unspeakable in front of lots of people in what was 
popularly alluded to as, as foul-smelling kitchens and be secure in the knowledge that no, no one will bat an, bat an eyelid. It's a question of kind of blending into the crowd, and, and these lodging houses really enable their occupants to do that, which was why they were so popular with the sort of criminal fraternity, the kind of criminally coerced. Um, you know, after Thomas Sadler was beat, beaten up, I mean, the offenders bolted straight into a lodging house because they could sort of get away with that sort of thing. And, uh, and I, th I think a, a serial killer returning home with organs could just cook away in the, in, in the kitchen, um, which, were, which were densely populated and, uh, and malodorous. <laughs> Robert McLaughlin, you were going to chime in there? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, whether he was uh, Hutchinson, going back to the point of whether he was absent from the lodging house and whether it would have been noticed was important. Uh, and I don't think it was simply given the fact that he'd already had a cover story that he had been to Romford. <coughs> so if he had been to Romford, it didn't really matter if he had um, not been back to the Victoria home. Um, but I actually wanted to uh, move on and see what um, uh, people think about the fact that, you know, it seems that we have very little details about George Hutchinson, the person. We can't uh, trace him by uh, either trade nor age uh, nor census data. And I'm wondering if uh, some people think that, that George Hutchinson may even be an alias. Well, I think, I think that's, a, that's a reasonable suggestion there, Rob. I mean, if... if a lot of the account is as patently bogus as I believe it to be. I mean, what's to say that the name couldn't be false? I mean, certainly very few of the George Hutchinsons that turn up in the various census records seem remotely viable. And a, lot of, a lot of them seem quite uh, implausible in a way. And, uh, and, I mean, other people have done more of a lion's share in that, in that capacity than I have. But uh, now I think an alias is, uh, is, um, is very, quite a plausible explanation indeed, really. Didn't um, Inspector Aberline say that he was familiar with George Hutchinson, which would indicate to me, it's not proof, that he knew George Hutchinson by the name George Hutchinson? I think um, Aberline was only aware of Hutchinson insofar as what Hutchinson had told him, that he was uh, a resident of Victoria Hope and that he was a, a, a formerly a groom now working as a labourer. I mean... Uh, I mean, certain things could have been checked into, for example, that he lived in Victoria Home, was known as George Hutchinson, check, check. Uh, but I suggest that that's about as far as he could have gone. Um, I don't think there's any suggestion that he absolutely ascertained uh, his identity, which, which would have been very, very difficult in those days anyway, I'd imagine. To sort of, uh, uh, Can I ask you something, Ben? Um, Go ahead. How, how do you view the... Um the identification of um, George William Topping Hutchinson. Uh, I, I, I tend to think that's a bit of a, a bit of a dead end, to be honest, um, Chris. I think uh, I think it's uh, been fairly well demonstrated that that's the wrong uh, individual. I mean, uh, various other uh, Hutchinsons appear in the census records as well. Um, yeah. Now, n none of them seem suitable themselves, but uh, I think top. Toppy, as I like to call him, is just just that bit worse. I mean, there's no there's no real connection uh, to the East End until he met his wife, which was after uh, the Ripper murders. The handwriting was compared. Uh, Sue Ironmonger compared the handwriting. That didn't mesh up either. And uh, he was described as a plumber who um, was rarely, if ever, out. Uh, who was rarely, if ever, out of work. Yeah. Uh, so various things are very incompatible. Um, besides the fact that it, it appeared in the Ripper and the Royals, which was, I think, disavowed by its own author as, uh, as nonsense. Yeah. And certain telltale things have had me sort of uh, 
have me reaching for the alcohol, things like um, uh, <laughs> the claim that uh, he's seen Lord Randolph Churchill. I mean, my favourite thing yeah. is now I realise all along yes. that he really had seen Lord Randolph Churchill. Yeah. And I'm sort of thinking, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, here we go again. Uh, here we go again. So, um, so I, 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 I think that's a bit of a dead end, unfortunately. I mean, and I think other... I'm not entirely clear on the details, but other, other people besides Melvin Fairclough had interviewed uh, this Reg character, and yeah. I think quite a few of them came away thinking um, that the identification is uh, with he of Kelly notoriety uh, doesn't add up. It might have been someone like Ivor Edwards, I think, someone like that. I can't remember. Right. Um, yeah, it was Ivor. Is that right? Is that right, Howard? Yes, I Yes, Ivor, Ivor um, chatted with him about four or five years ago and came away unimpressed. Yeah. Right, yeah, I think I, I think I read something like that as well. Um, I think, I think it's, it's probably just another one of these family stories. I think so, I think so. Um, I think some people's faith in Hutchinson's story is, is rather too pre- predicated on a belief in this, yeah. in, in, in the identification of George William Tuffing Hutchinson yeah. with the with yeah. witness of Kelly notoriety. I think it's, a, if I can just, um, again, I'm sort of thinking of the, uh, you know, our dear listeners. I think it's also important to point out that some of the, um, some of the facts in inverted commas that we associate with Hutchinson don't come from his statements or, in fact, any police statements, but from press reports, and therefore have to be viewed with a little bit more caution. For example, the, the description of um, Hutchinson as a groom um, I, I've only ever seen that in press reports. I haven't seen that in any... I did a search on any Hutchinson that was described as a, a groom or a horse keeper or an ostler or anything to do yeah. with horse keeping or, or a coachman or anything like that, and there wasn't one. Me too, you know, yeah, Now, Chris... Sorry, Chris, yeah, I read that in the Daily News as well, and, and they also say that he was a man of military appearance. Did you, That's right. Did you check that? Did you check that aspect as well? Again, it's sadly it's not it's not a it's not a grossly common name. You're not, you're not dealing with a Smith or Jones, but George Hutchinson is. A, it's a more common name than one would wish. Put it that way. So I, I certainly have looked through army records, but again, you're back to so many problems with the Kelly thing. We just haven't got. If if the. Um, if the quoted trade is either bogus or wrong or invented, then we've really got nothing else to fall back on. We've only got a lodging address. We don't even know his age. So really, there's, there's, there's so little to check or to cross-reference. I found the same problem with, with the groom issue. I mean, uh, there are no George Hutchinsons who, who exactly. worked as a groom, which exactly. means either, to my mind, yeah. it means either this, this is none of, another one of Hutchinson's tall tales, I think it is because, I mean, around the same period, I mean, if you look at the early accounts of the Kelly murder itself, I mean, she was, um, she was described as married to a coal porter in the, um, in the early, the very early, the same day reports. I mean, there were just so many inventions flying around. And I said on the one, it was either last week or the week before, I, I just get the impression that it was, um, it was hacks wandering around Dorset Street talking to all and sundry and basically picking up street gossip or, or maybe just inventing, I don't know. But um, no, I think with Hutchinson, as with so many other things in the, in the whole Kelly saga, you know, sadly everything has to be treated with great caution. Absolutely. Can I ask you another thing, Ben? Do you, do you place any credence in... Because um, one thing that's always intrigued me about Hutchinson 
is the nature of his relationship with Kelly, because he claimed to have known her for three years. Now, yes. was, he, was he a friend? Was he a client? Was he a ca- do, you, do you believe he'd known her for three years? Again, that, that's, that, that's, that's very difficult. I mean, it's, uh, it's, if there was some kind of external corroboration of that, um, it would be difficult to know if this was... Uh, it would be easy to know if this was a, another lie or something that was maybe, um, maybe rang true. Um, yeah. I have to say, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, if, if, if he'd known her for three years, uh, then uh, he must have met her sometime in 1885 when she was living, I think, in uh, Pen- Pennington Street, uh, which was yes. quite some distance away from the murder district. Well, yes, um, it was down Ratcliffe Highway. I mean, there was... I mean, the only, one, the only one I know who claimed to have known her longer was Morris Lewis, because Morris Lewis said that he'd known her for four years. But, I mean, I think... Yeah. I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that, you know, Hutchinson's claiming to have known her twice as long as the guy she was living with. I mean, Barnett had only known her about 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and, he, and he, he said he'd given her money on previous occasions. Now, do we draw the obvious inference for that, and that was for sexual favours? I mean, was, was Hutchinson saying that he was a client of hers? Significantly, he says that uh, I, I gave her a few shillings on occasion yeah. in, in one account, which is, uh, you know, that, that, that's luxury for, you know, a, a, a tuppence or a threepence or a loaf of stale bread. <laughs> God bless, God bless Rumbelow. Um, uh, sort of prostitute of that area. Uh, so, you know, shillings was a significant amount of money. And as I said in a couple of podcasts previously, that's, that's almost sort of uh, uh, palimony money. In, in, in those days, the, you know, the sorts of allowances that, uh, for example, Annie Chapman was getting uh, from her estranged husband. Yeah. Uh, we're, talking, we're talking about a significant relationship rather than a casual uh, prostitute-client relationship, I would have thought. Yeah. And that shilling, that shilling detail came directly from Abilene. That appeared in the actual police statement. That's right. So that was something that, was something that uh, right. Hutchinson had uh, yeah. told Abilene directly. I mean, the other, he didn't the other, give her that money for doing. He didn't give other, her that money other. for doing his laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, washing his red other, handkerchiefs. You mean, yeah? yeah the other possible hat. The other possible inference from that, because the time scheme. Well, if you place any credence in the Kelly story, I mean, the, the time scheme from 1884 onwards is so garbled, it's hard to pin down any event to a specific time. But if you're going back to 1885, it is possible if you're talking about shillings rather than pence, that Hutchinson might have known her before her fall from grace, and he might even have known her when she was in Knightsbridge. Yes, but, the, but that, that then makes Hutchinson a somewhat grander character, possibly, uh, than, than he actually was, or uh, equally unlikely that he'd fallen from grace to the same sort of time scale as, as, as Kelly had done. Exactly, um, exactly. If we take the three years and, and, and sort of go back a bit, you know, beyond Pennington Street, I mean, when... Kelly left the Rutcliffe Highway. She, she went and lived with the mysterious Morgan Stone um, uh, and then got hitched with um, Joseph Fleming the Plasterer, uh, yeah. uh, who by all accounts she was rather sweet on. And uh, you know, her, her friends believed that she may have gone on to marry Fleming. Uh, so you're talking about that sort of period um, when Kelly was allegedly living in the region of was it Stepney Gasworks. Yeah. Um, uh, where she bumps into uh, you know, Morganstone and, and, and then this, this Fleming character from, from Bethnal Green, I believe. Well, that, that, uh, touches on another, that, that touches on another thread that was on the boards. And, I mean, I don't know how Ben feels about this, but, I mean, so, so, some people argue that 
George Hutchinson and Joseph Fleming were one and the same. I, I think that there's potentially more mileage in that one, to be honest. I mean, certainly more so than the uh, <laughs> than Toffee. You know, I mean, as I said, none of these George Hutchinsons who appear in the census records uh, fit anything like, seem to fit the bill at all. No. But we do know of uh, this other man who moved into the Victoria home in August of 1888, who was accustomed to visiting her and giving her money, who had known her for three years. Now, on the surface of it, yes. that sounds like a description of Hutchinson. But in fact, all yes. that was true of Fleming who was Kelly's ex-boyfriend, who reportedly ill-used her simply for living with Barnett, uh, and who was ultimately committed to an insane asylum not too far from Romford. So that's, that's, that's something to consider and something that I've noticed has uh, grown in popularity. Um, yeah, yeah. Other posters. One other interesting sort of coincidence, if you like, about um, Fleming was that uh, his family sort of were based in, in the Bethnal Green Road, which is where Sarah Lewis allegedly saw this, this, this weirdo on the Wednesday before Kelly's death. Uh, I mean, maybe that was yeah. But, you know, that, that, that was Fleming's roots uh, were, were, were in Bethnal Green, Bethnal Green Road. Um, also, also, I mean, from the period when Fleming was... Um, committed, uh, we don't know how far before that, but it certainly uh, seems to be the case that Fleming wasn't averse to using an assumed name, because he was actually committed yes, under the name of James right. Evans. Yes, yes, I was going to point that out exactly, Chris. Not only did all they have all this in common, uh, giving her the money, the three years, the Victoria home, but uh, Joseph Fleming was a, a user of aliases, so uh, yeah. just something, something to consider. It would, it would, it would dovetail nicely. Um, uh, just a quick question. Uh, how far is Romford from uh, Whitechapel? Like, how long would it take Hutchinson to walk that distance? I've always been curious about that. That's a very good question, Rob. I've, I've heard various uh, estimates. I mean, I think it was Chris Miles, who in one, in, in one Hutchinson book, mentioned that it was 16, uh, 16 miles. I've heard 10. I've heard 13. Um, I'm not sure what Google Map or something like that said, but it, 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 I think it would be certainly quite a bit in excess of 10 miles. And in this case, it would have been in, uh, in the small hours and in miserable <laughs> weather conditions. You, you'd be looking about something like a three-hour walk, I would have thought. One of the, an interesting uh, angle on the, uh, the Fleming issue is that uh, Julia Venturni mentioned that he was at some point a costermonger, and costermongers used to go on sort of visits to uh, places outside the East End, most popular of which was Romford. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's another interesting sort of angle to consider. If he was a costermonger at one point, as, uh, as, as, as Van Turney pointed out, then uh, it's quite possible that uh, Hutchinson as Fleming was on the way back from some kind of costermongering, hawking visit. I wanted to ask, back to the Victoria home, before he went to the police, he supposedly told uh, a resident of the lodging house a similar story, and it was that person who encouraged him to go to the police. Now, he was known at Victoria home as George Hutchison, correct? Because they established his identity. It was reported in the press that they went back and established his identity. Do we assume that he to also told this fellow lodger that he knew Mary Kelly for the number of years that uh, he had told the police, or is there's a or if it's a possibility that some of the fellow lodgers knew he was associated with Mary Kelly for all these numbers of years? The idea of him being Fleming is is intriguing, but it seems that he was known as I mean. If he did it, he's going to be hung as George Hutchinson, no matter what his name is. Um, 
as far as the police are concerned, you know, it'd be nice to trace him to the cen- in the census and all that stuff. But if he's telling the people at the Victoria home he's George Hutchison and the, the police he's George Hutchison, and if the people at the Victoria home are aware of his history possibly with Mary Kelly, what, what does anyone think about that? The uh, Fleming moved into the uh, Victoria home at the rather crucial date of um, August 1888. So if there's any truth in the, uh, the Hutchinson as Fleming hypothesis, then he could easily have introduced himself as Hutchinson, uh, and, and, and no one would be really able to sort of contradict him. But as for the Lodger story, I think that was just something he concocted to explain why he came forward at that point. I think he probably would have con- been quizzed along those direct lines. You know, why did you only come forward now? Oh, well, because the Lodger happened to me just just then, uh, which conveniently coincided with the publication of Sarah Lewis's um, uh, testimony. So I think rather than tell them the truth, you know, as I perceive it, you know, I came forward because I realized I'd been seen at a crime scene, uh, it's better to say that, oh, no, it's an, a perfectly innocent reason for the delay. Yes, I was a bit nervous, and suddenly a lodger mentioned, mentioned uh, that I should come forward. And I thought, well, yes, that's a good idea. Let's do that. He also seems to protesteth a bit too much as well when, when he also points out to the press, oh, I did tell a policeman, yeah, but he that's didn't it. do anything about it. Yes, and that, that's... That sounds a bit desperate to me. <laughs> Very desperate. It doesn't sound like mens rea, exactly, but, you know, it, it, it does sound like fabrication. Yeah, I'll be, uh, the, I contacted a policeman about it who did nothing, and, uh, yes, I mean, that's... Um, in fact, that episode could have been what caused Hutchinson to, uh, to drop off the map as, as, as a witness of interest, because, I mean, something as patently bogus as a claim to have told a policeman about it on beat, who did nothing. I mean, if the police could have checked up on that. They could have said, well, Hutchinson, where did you meet this policeman? I mean, because uh, all policemen in those days, they had a delineated beat. Hutchinson could have named a particular date and a particular time, uh, and, the, and Abeline could go up and say, uh, well, Mr. Policeman, did somebody approach you at this time? And the policeman would say no, and, uh, and, and Hutchinson would be, uh, would be smelt out as a liar accor- accordingly. So I think that, that's one of those factors that may explain the lack of interest in Hutchinson as a witness subsequently. But it, it also, uh, it was, it, I was going to say real quickly, is that scenario also kind of shows the, the ineptness on the part of the police officials at the time don't wouldn't you agree i mean if we compare it to other cases of murder uh in the modern times you know uh if if an investigation hits a dead end like the ripper investigation did then they go back and look at all of their past leads and the past people they spoke with i mean hutchison dropped off if if you know if the police thought he was a liar and he dropped off, the problem I have is that he he never is is uh, suspected. He never there is never a point where he becomes uh, a suspect as opposed to a liar, which to right. me shows just horrible police work. Yeah, and that's something uh, that I think. Wait, go ahead, Allie, Early, and then Howard. When you were talking about, oh, this, you know, and I, without getting into all the incredible differences between the previous serial killers who have interjected themselves into police um, matters, 
and, and, and the differences between what Hutchinson would have done and those done, the key difference is, is that the moment that they do so, the police automatically t- sort of go, hmm, his suspect, this is, this is odd, this is strange, and they immediately become a suspect in the killings, which would be in stark contrast to what happened here. And so, yes, his statement is obviously a lie. It's clearly a lie. There's so many ludicrous details in it. And for the police not to have suspected him and not to have made some sort of inquiry into him, it just seems to me that, you know, they had to have had a fairly firm idea that this was just a man who, in my opinion, read the account in the newspaper and, yes, decided to come forward, but basically as a means of interjecting himself into the investigation for the thrill, for the excitement. You know, lots of people, there are thousands more who wrote letters and who, uh, you know, did all these kinds of things to put themselves into the case. Um, And it just seems to me that Hutchinson falls under that category of that sort of attention-seeking dramatist rather than uh, a legitimate suspect, because I can't imagine the police wouldn't have given him the eye and said, well, this is odd, let's investigate. Unfortunately, I mean, there's no there's no easy formula always for determining guilt or innocence. Um, if they didn't suspect him and he was the killer, then the ploy obviously worked, and that's hardly surprising, really, given the lack of historical precedent back then for killers pretending to be witnesses. I mean, unlike today, when it's more common and 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 uh, and, and the the police and the authorities are more clued up on it. Hang on, um, on the other hand, if they did suspect him, again, it would be pretty impossible to secure proof. If they wanted to check up on alibis for previous murders, uh, all he had to say was, well, I was asleep in the Victoria home, Gulf." You know, absolutely secure in the knowledge uh, that he couldn't be contradicted. Gary Ridgway uh, inserted himself into the investigation as a witness and was suspected as a consequence. But they couldn't find any evidence to convict him, and he still turned out to be the killer decades later. So, firstly, I, I, it isn't definitely established. It, it isn't established that they never suspected him. They might have done, but the difference between... But of course, uh, Gary suspecting... Woodbread only inserted himself after he'd been accused of choking a prostitute. Someone saw him with one of the dead prostitutes who ended up and followed his, found his truck outside of his house. The police went to his house to question him. I mean, there was a large series of Gary Ridgway being caught choking prostitutes with one of the victims, his truck being identified and hunted out before he inserted himself in. And so, I mean, that one I do believe is a lapse in the police judgment, but, you know, it just seems, you know, it just, there's so many, um, you ha- well, if he did it, then this was what would have had to happen. If he did it, then this is what would happen. And it seems like we're trying to excuse away all of these sort of, dubious sort of circumstances to make him the killer when it's very simple in the fact that, you know, there, there, there's much more logical reasons for things without all these sort of extraneous explanations. Well, I don't really think they're sort of um, extraneous explanations. You, you know, you, you're noticing a kind of broad, a broad similarity. And, uh, and maybe their motivations are the same. My, point, my only point about Gary, Gary Ridgway there was that they did suspect him after he came forward as a bogus witness, as a bogus helpful informer. But uh, despite the fact that they suspected him, they couldn't pin the mantle of guilt on him, and he still turned out to be the killer. Obviously, there are going to be differences. I mean, you can't expect all serials to mirror one another you know, with, with exactitude. But I think if you find enough sort of congruity between, between, uh, between serials that you can... Uh, 
you can make a reasonable case. And as Gareth mentioned on a, in, a, in, a, in a recent post, it isn't really necessary to find examples of serial killers doing it necessarily. I mean, it's a sort of it's, it's kind of human nature. It's, it's like the kid who robbed the candy store and tried to blame it on the fat kid with chocolate around his mouth. All they're saying is, yep, I know I was seen outside the crime scene, but it wasn't me. The only reason I was there was because I saw the scary man. And it's him who did it, not me. That's the reason I was there. Uh, you know, that's... Um, you, can, you can do that. You can, you can have that mindset without being a serial killer. But the fact that we do have examples of serial ki killers doing precisely that is certainly noteworthy, and um, differences aside. And there will be differences, inevitably, but, um, you know... Uh, yeah. Ben, can I ask ahead, you something? Um, if Hutchinson was the killer, and then, let, uh, assuming that the whole of his statement was invention, and, mm -hmm. and if also if also he was the the man seen by Sarah Lewis, why why would he be standing outside waiting if Mr. Astrakhan didn't exist? I mean, why wouldn't he have been in Miller's Court with Kelly or? Was he standing out there to summon up the courage, or was there somebody else in there with her? Because my, my what, guess. What, I, what, I, what I'm getting at is, in the if you take the Sarah Lewis line, it looks as though Hutchinson is behaving in accordance with what he said in his statement. In other words, he'd he'd seen her go in with somebody and he was hanging about. But if if the man that she supposedly went in with didn't exist, why was he out there? There was also the uh, the, the the blotchy faced man, and we have. No evidence of when he left. Uh, so quite possibly, Hutchinson went straight there expecting to uh, do the dirty work, but found the blotchy character sort of sleep, you know, or worse, beside Kelly and thought, oh, sod this, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to wait, a, wait a while for the blotchy character to wake up, uh, disappear, allowing Hutchinson, Hutchinson to go in. That, that would be my guess. And you have all these uh, examples of serial killers conducting this bit of for the prior surveillance before they, um, before they go for the kill, especially with indoor serial killings. Um, at the Tallahassee murders, Ted Bundy, he resorted to this strategy of sort of a bit of kind of prior surveillance, casing the joint out first, and so did a recent uh, killer in this country by the name of Robert Napper, um, uh, recently uh, implicated in the Rachel Nickel murder. He did the same thing. He staked out the indoor murder scene first before going for the kill to case out the joint, see who's there, and seeking, seeking the kind of auspicious moment uh, to, to go in and, and do it, really. <clears throat> the only problem with that is, though, that we know that there was uh, a witness who sort of sailed into Miller's Court at about three o'clock. That was Mrs. Cox. So, so we sort of conclude from that that uh, either Hutchinson sort of ducked into the shadows you know, and, and under this scenario, or he was actually in there killing Kelly when, when Cox arrived at three. Yes, I mean, or, or in there and not killing Kelly. I mean, you know, finally that Lewis's woman's gone in. Right, I can go in now that Lewis has disappeared. In I go, oh, bugger, there's somebody else coming down the interconnecting passage. Uh, you know, Mary Cox. And so that made, might have stalled. I mean, if Kelly was asleep at that stage and he was kind of stalling, then uh, he probably remained in the room without, you know, without killing her, again, waiting for the opportune moment. But... Um, <laughs> Pretending to be a lampstand or something, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's it, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's standing that's in the room waiting to kill her. With, with a lampshade <laughs> on his head. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I have two questions uh, about this point. Under your scenario, Ben, wouldn't it maybe make sense if um, 
if instead of uh, Hutchison was waiting for Blotchy to leave Mary Kelly's room, he was at, he could have been actually waiting for Mary Kelly to leave the room, intending on a street attack as opposed to an indoor murder. Um, Very possible too, uh, Jonathan, yeah. yeah. And, and secondly, um, are we really to believe in the knowing Kelly for the period of time he claimed to know her? That would be unusual in a serial killer Unless you presume he also knew Eddowes, let's say, or one of the other. It'd be unusual for a serial killer to choose as one of his later victims someone who he knew intimately and for many years. You would think that they might start with the familiar first and then move to the more unfamiliar as the series continues. So, so unless his knowing Mary Kelly personally was just a complete invention, I think it's odd for him to choose her as a victim if he was on intimate terms with her. Yeah, but didn't, didn't that end Kenpo, wasn't it? Uh, he, um, he, he ended up sort of killing the, the, the sort of uh, nucleus or nexus, if you like, of, of, of his particular problem, who I think was his mother. After, after killing several other people. Um, so are we so, getting you know, into the he was secretly in love with her and was killing other prostitutes to keep her off of the street slash dope? Oh, no. No, I, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, no, 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 no not, not at all. But, you know, uh, um, I mean... No, but I see your point, Gareth. No, I think... So, I mean, what I'm saying is there, there are precedents or post-cedents, if you like, of, 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 of killers, you know, going around the houses, so to speak, uh, with with uh, anonymous victims before finally targeting someone they know. Exactly, Gareth. Another good example is Nathaniel Code in, in Louisiana. You know, he killed lots of strangers, but his final victim was his father, who he didn't get on with, and... Um, May or may not have considered him a kind of catalyst for the uh, for the murders. Interesting. Uh, he I think also that's its parents, though, which could be considered the root of the rage, which end up as the final denouement, the last act. I mean, which is consistent with the whole you know nature versus nurture shaping theory, which people believe the environment contributes. So if it's your parent who's causing this sort of rage, that might make sense. But for it to be like a random person, woman who you sort of vaguely know and then you end up killing her as the end of your serial killing crescendo well, indeed, but you know the, the assumption would be that um especially under the, the the slightly lunatic fleming scenario i mean lunatic as in lunatic idea um mea culpa um is is that uh, is that you know kelly was a significant other uh, at some point um and certainly with, with the Joel Fleming uh, scenario, that's to divorce it from the he was Hutchinson argument for one moment, certainly with um, Joel Fleming, we know, uh, or we can we can be fairly sure that Joel Fleming was known to um, ill-use Mary Kelly um, after she'd split up with him and gone and shot up with Barnett. So there was, there was evidently a bit of rough stuff going on there after she left uh, Fleming. Who all behold turns up two or three blocks away in, in, in August of 1888. That's presuming Hutchinson no, that, is Fleming, which I don't think we've no, even no, established no. enough to recommend that. But if no, I, 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 was, I, was, I was keeping that separate. You know, I was keeping that separate. You know, so, um, uh, you know, Fleming, uh, in, in and of himself, could have got some sort of hang-up about Kelly at some point. 
maybe that was the source of his pathology that ended up in, you know, putting him in the asylum. I don't know. There's no way of knowing that. Uh, he certainly beat up uh, Kelly on occasion. We know that the police uh, inquired at the Victoria home. Does anyone know if they ever inquired at Rockford? No, no, we don't. No. Certainly not have. That would be. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing to point out is that the, the you know the police records are rather sparse. Yeah, um, we know that a number of uh, police files were sort of uh, taken off the shelves and used for kindling or whatever, or or, right. or, or, or rabbit bedding. Yeah, it's another type of hutch for those who are listening. Yeah. Um, well, we know that. We know the police inquired all the way to San Francisco about a sample of Tumblebee's handwriting, but it's a shame we don't know what they did in Romford, if they did anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating because the, you know, the actual extant files on Mary Kelly, you know, what with the, the uh, accelerated inquest and everything else, or the, or the precipitous inquest, um, uh, the inquiry was left very few traces behind in the files. Uh, and and what traces remained, I dare say, you know, could could have been lost forever. Uh, in any case, so we really don't know whether. I'm sure the police would have. I'm sure the police would have uh, searched the Victoria home, um, most of the other uh, male lodging houses in the area. The police themselves had, if, if you like, uh, vicarious contacts with the Victoria home because the uh, the various deputies employed by Victoria home were. Uh, yeah, you know, numbered uh, retired policemen amongst their ranks. So, um, you know, they, they could have an inside tack there into what was going on in the Victoria home. What is interesting, what is interesting is that uh, nowhere in all this does uh, Fleming turn up anywhere. But yet, the, the woman whom he may have married at one point uh, ends up being butchered, you know, 30, 40 yards away from where we know he was living in the Victoria home, and he doesn't turn up at all. Right. Not one statement. I find that rather odd. Yes, after having moved there in, uh, in August of 1888. Which, uh... Oh, indeed, we get Maurice Lewis, uh, you know, we get Mrs. Cox, we get uh, Julia Van Turney, we get all these various peripheral people, sort of step Mrs. Phoenix, uh, Mrs. Carthy, they all step forward, even uh, George Hutchinson, bless him, they all turn up and say, yeah, We'd like to give some information about uh, Mary Kelly, but Fleming doesn't. I find that odd. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Good, good observation. Another question I had, and this is back on the pathology of him um, being uh, considered a liar as opposed to a suspect by the police. Um, as someone had mentioned, you know, we had all of these people writing bogus letters to the police. We had. Uh, individuals showing up at the police uh, stations claiming to be the murderer. One would think that George Hutchinson wasn't the first one to approach the police with a fake witness statement. Why it uh, garnered the press attention that it did, it may have been something to do with the fact that George himself approached the press. But uh, So does anyone else know of other cases um, within the series of, of, of the Jack the Ripper murders where uh, we know for a fact that someone claims to be a false witness as opposed to, uh, you know, someone coming in to say he's the murderer himself. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, the obvious one is Matthew Packer, I think. Right. I'm not saying Packer didn't see anything, but, I mean, his story became so embellished. I mean, he became almost like another Albert Backert. I mean, it was, um, you know, this, it, it started off with a story about selling the grapes, and then that became more and more elaborate, 
and was uh, peddled through the press rather than through the police. And then sometime later, you got this even more extraordinary story from Matthew Packer about uh, two men coming along and interviewing him, and one of them saying that the Ripper was his cousin. I mean, it just became quite extraordinary. And I think that's certainly one case where there may have been a kernel of, of truth in what Packer was saying, and he lived so close to the scene of the Stride murder, but, I mean, it just got out of all proportion. I'm, certainly by the end, he was fantasizing. I'm just wondering, the reason I asked was I, um, I'm curious as to how much Hutchinson stood out from the police who were inundated with uh, phony letters, inundated with people coming in and actually confessing to the crimes. I wonder if they were also inundated with people coming in saying they saw something on the nights of the murders that that they didn't see. And so maybe that's could be a reason why the police dismissed him out of hand as opposed to turning him around into a suspect. If they honestly suspected every individual who um, claimed they were Jack the Ripper at the time or sent a letter saying they were Jack the Ripper, you know, um, they were swamped. So I, 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 think, just... I, think, I, think, I think you've got to put it in, in, in context of the time because, you know, this is the last of the canonical five. There's a, there's a, a, a hell of an uproar going on. Warren's just resigned. Um, I, I, I don't think they could have afforded to, even though Hutchinson's statement would have appeared to be too good to be true. He was in exactly the right place at the right time. He got virtually a, you know, do-it-yourself ripper kit. I mean, this this yeah, man he described, this man he described was virtually like you know, custom-made, all-purpose ripper. I mean, but. Exactly, but they're consider, considering the, the mood at the time, as I said, you know, this was the last murder, all this furore had been building up. Uh, Warren had literally, you know, within a couple of days had resigned. I, I don't think the police could have afforded to, uh, to ignore it. Certainly not, not in, huh? initially. Um, no, exactly. I mean, I think that the obligation, first of all, was to circulate the statements, however dubious they considered it, and sort of ask questions later. But then yeah. I think from the 15th oh, yes, but, of November... But, but, but in, in, in Hutchinson's defence, Ben, really, you know, uh, in, in terms of the dubiousness of the statement, uh, it was uh, endorsed by Aveline. Uh, initially, certainly. No, you're quite right. Oh, well, initially, well, but absolutely, but, you know, uh, uh, Philip Sengden makes the, um, you know, the legitimate uh, and astute observation in his book that uh, evidently Aveline was... Um, was impressed by uh, Hutchinson, at least initially. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which 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 stands for something. I, I don't buy this notion of Abilene as super sleuth, by the way. Uh, I, I just think he was a very you know effective uh, jobbing uh, inspector. Uh, yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, I mean, his experience was was significant. Uh, his record was uh, rather good, um, and it would have taken a. a Quite a special character to have pulled the wool over his eyes, I would have thought. Although by 1903, it's, 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 it seems quite clear that he'd, uh, he'd given Hutchinson's statement the, the heave-ho by then, because he, was, he went on record as saying that the only suspects uh, worthy of consideration, the only witnesses worthy of consideration were those who had either acquired a rear view or were foreign. And since, since yes. Hutchinson alleged, alleged both a front view and somebody of a foreign appearance, uh, it seems uh, odd that Avalon didn't mention him in that capacity, especially as he was comparing him at that stage to Klosowski. No, I think from the, I think from well, the uh, as early as the 15th, perhaps, on the, on the star, it, it seems 
obvious to me at least that Hutch, interest in Hutchinson uh, as a witness was starting to fade. And uh, Anderson and McNaughton obviously had their reasons for using a Jewish witness in preference to Hutchinson. And uh, McNaughton, too, I mean, went on record as saying nobody saw the Whitechapel murderer unless it was the uh, city PC from Mitre Square. Uh, you know, he didn't yeah. say, oh, and also that brilliant star witness that, uh, that, uh, that I forgot all about. Um, so I think I think I think in police terms, I mean, Hutchinson's shelf life as a witness was uh, was pretty short. I mean, although An- although Abilene said he he thought his statement was true, as far as I'm aware, and I may be wrong, I don't think there was any sort of um, concerted follow-up. I mean, H- uh, Hutchinson went out with detectives that evening uh, to search the streets, but as far as I know, in the days following, there was no sort of concerted follow-up to try and definitively track down this man that uh, Hutchinson had allegedly seen. You're quite right, Chris. No, I agree 100%. And also, when you look at the various memoirs, as I mentioned, the memoirs and interviews and reports of other police officers, uh, Hutchinson is very conspicuous in his absence, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Does anyone get the impression that the police viewed Hutchinson much like Matthew Packer as a publicity seeker? It's quite possible in in the long run. Um, But whether... Obviously, whether it was the right uh, explanation is, uh, is, uh, remains to be seen, uh, and it probably never will be. But uh, even if he wasn't a publicity seeker, the fact that uh, it's not inconceivable that they may have dismissed him as one. Yeah, I, can, I know I can buy that quite, uh, quite cheerfully. Yeah. Well, because the interesting thing about uh, Abilene's later sort of capitulation, I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, Ben, that he, he, he seemed to favour... Um, other witnesses later in life um, in the early 1900s Um, but his suspect at the time um, Klosowski or uh, George Chapman um, you know bears an uncanny sort of retrofit resemblance to Mr Astrakhan uh, at at least uh, which which suggests that you know this dapper sort of pub landlord come hairdresser come uh, Feldscher um, and wife poisoner of note, with a big bushy moustache and, and being rather foreign himself, um, suddenly Hutton sort of heaves into into view and, and and Abilene says, "Oh yeah, I reckon it was him." Um, uh, might there be some sort of residuum there of of, of, of Hutchinson's description colouring Abilene's later judgment? I wonder. I think that he he failed to even mention Hutchinson as a uh, as, as a possible comparison study in that regard. I think, if anything, it's 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 more conspicuous. Um, here was a golden opportunity to say, "Look, here is surly, swarthy complexion, Mustachio Klosowski, and he looks like, funnily enough, uh, the, the suspect described by what we regarded back then as our star witness." Um, but the fact that he doesn't do that, he sort of forsakes that. Golden opportunity is, uh, you know, suggests that uh, Hutchinson had <laughs> the map by then. Instead, all he's the only comparison he makes is Pete Caps, uh, and uh, and the only witnesses who describe Pete Caps were, of course, um, uh, Schwartz and Lavender. So, uh, if he had Hutchinson in mind, um, which I personally doubt, I think he was certainly missing an opportunity there, um, because otherwise, yes, um, there is the sort of superficial uh, similarity there. Klosowski and Astrakhan, mm. um, but of course, in, in other respects, of course, they're, they're they're quite a substantial misfit. I mean, I don't I don't think there's any, any evidence that Klosowski uh, could speak English. Um, certainly by 1888, especially not kind of witty conversational 
uh, English uh, of the order adopted by Mr. Astrakhan. Yeah. Um, but sorry, I'm going straight into a Klosowski debate. So back to back to Hutch. <laughs> Can I, there is there is one nightmare scenario which has actually been suggested to me, which was that if this goes back to the idea that Hutchinson, as we can't find a fit, if Hutchinson's name was either assumed or anglicised, then there's no way of us to dismiss the idea that Jewish, uh, that uh, Hutchinson himself was actually Jewish. And he could he could have been Anderson's witness. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's, that's that's very that's very interesting. Although that's that's at one end of the scale, I, <laughs> I suggest. I find that unlikely. I mean, if he allegedly has a sister down in Romford or whatever. Um, sorry, I'm thinking of Toppy now, aren't I? Slap wrist. I was just yeah. trying to work out how have. I was just trying to work out how having a sister in Romford precluded somebody from being Jewish. Oh, wow. Well. <laughs> I mean... Uh, <laughs> I thought, what am I missing? It, it, no, no, no. no. I, I, I think, I think uh, that there are reasonable suggestions, uh, reasonable indications, rather, that uh, Anderson's witness um, wasn't Hutchinson, uh, even if he was Jewish, because I think... I can't remember if it was the Sadler identification or Granger... But uh, clearly, sort of mitre square was mentioned, and, and, and yeah, uh, yeah. so that would sort of rule Hutchinson out, even on, even on that basis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, again, the fact that he Hutchinson obviously wasn't used in identity parades, despite alleging a much better look than any of the Jewish witnesses, um, suggests yeah. that they, they must have had a better, a, a good reason for using somebody like Lavender or Schwartz. Uh, in preference. All right. Does um, anyone have any final points that they want to raise here? I just wanted to briefly comment on the uh, why he might not have been used as a later witness. Um, it might not just merely been because he was discredited or anything that he said was not believed. It could simply be because um, we cannot place him immediately uh, close to the time of death of Mary Kelly that even if Astrakhan Man does exist in the form that Hutchinson says, that he may not be the murderer of Mary Jane Kelly, whereas Schwartz and Lavender are placed very close to the time of death of both Stride and Eddowes. That's a possibility, Rob, although I, I think if the police considered that there was any possibility of Hutchinson's man being the killer, then they would have still have sort of kept him in circulation and used him in the old identity parade on the off chance that he'd recognize someone. Uh, for example, even if they believed, well, it's quite possible that somebody else arrived on the scene after Mr. Astrakhan, uh, mm. it's worth having Hutchinson look any suspect that comes in over, just in case there wasn't, and Astrakhan was the last person to see, and, and was the ripper. Uh, mm. it's, it's, uh, it's one of those Crime Watch UK expressions. Uh, eliminate them from our inquiries. So, mm. you know, I, I think Hutchinson would have been... Uh, and. and by extension, Mr. Astrakhan would have been kept would have kept in circulation um, on that basis. So I think um, I think to, to rule him out completely and sort of not use him uh, at all as uh, as, as, as a as a, as a um, someone to identify potential suspects in identity parades, it must have been something rather more serious than that. In my opinion. Now, it, now is it possible that he that he falls out of favour? Uh, because uh, Aberline sends two detectives around with him on the 12th and the 13th, you know, to see if he can recognize anyone in the Spitalfields area as being Mr. Astrakhan. 
It's difficult to know how long those uh, those searches lasted. I mean, um, but maybe the police that accompanied him, you know, saw that in their eyes he lost credibility. Maybe during those two night searches, they found out. Oh, that, that's, that's yeah, yeah. That's what no, I was no, getting. I what you mean, though? Yes, yeah, that's quite possible. Yeah, we, Rob. No good point. We, we've already seen him, you know, change his suspect's complexion from from pale to dark, and his moustache from you know dark to light, and you know, bushy to slight and all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, so it, it does seem that, you know, between his police statement and his press statement, uh, he's wavering a bit on detail. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to the press statement as well, he's also embellishing like Billy or... Yes, so, yes he was. Uh, and also tidying things up. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I, I gave due, due praise to Phil, Philip Sedman's book earlier, but, you know, in, in, in the same breath as saying that Abilene was impressed by Hutchinson, he also, he also says that his statement only differs in one or two minor details, and uh, Rob, way back in his introduction, sort of um, echoed that. But actually, you, you know, the chap's complexion and his moustache, they're pretty significant details. But what Hutchinson comes up with uh, in his press statement compared to his police statement are polar opposites. And, you know, yeah, and, and that is significant. You're quite right. Uh, and there's all that additional detail of the big stone, you know, the big red stone and the the American cloth. And though I asked a policeman and uh, well, I told the policeman we, our, our lodger put me up to it and all this sort of stuff. Um, it, yes. it just seems to be p- p- piling on the agony, doesn't he? Piling on the agony and also sort of uh, tidying things up, it's, it's as though that he's he's not quite certain that his existing story is convincing enough and that uh, certain questions will be asked if he doesn't explain certain areas. For example, you know, he, he's perhaps conscious that he hasn't explained the delay, why he came forward when he did, and so he thinks, oh, oh I'd better sort of come up with an explanation. Ah, yes, that was it. I uh, bumped into a policeman uh, who didn't, who couldn't be asked to do anything about it, so that, that's, that's why I'm late. And, oh, and a, and a lodger told me about it. It's as though he, uh, his story would have been hastily contrived when it appeared uh, at 6 p.m. on the 12th. You know, if, 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 if he came res- forward in response to Lewis's evidence, then it would have been sort of, you know, very hastily gathered together, which meant that by the time he approached the press, he would have thought, now, hang on, I didn't quite get that right. I've, I've got to tidy that up a little bit more yeah. um, to, to give himself a few more outs uh, if... if, if Awkward questions are leveled his way. Yeah. C- can I mention? Or if it had little... just lied the first time, forgotten what he said, and invented more as he went along, trying. Yeah, to absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just, just forgot what he lied can about. I, can I mention? Yeah. Go ahead. Can I mention two details that, that we haven't touched on, which I think uh, uh, intrigue me. One is that I wonder why, as the, but I mean, <laughs> before he went to the police, he, the inquest was over and done with. Um because he didn't go till 6 o'clock in the evening of the day of the inquest. So I, I, I wonder why they took him to the mortuary to identify the body. That's intrigued me as to why they did that. And secondly, and I can't remember this detail, and Ben, you can probably remind me, um, at some stage Hutchinson claimed that he had seen Mr Astrakhan again, didn't he? He said he'd seen him in Petticoat Market, I think. But I can't remember, where, I can't remember when. On the Sunday. On the, On the Sunday. Sunday. Oh, right. yeah, that's, that's, that's quite funny. That's an interesting one. He says, um, in one breath, he goes, I could swear to the man anywhere. But then he goes, oh, I might have saw him again in Petticoat Lane. I think he's a <laughs> hazy memory, you know. Uh, yeah. And, of course, Petticoat Lane is where the Jews live. And so that's, uh, that's all uh, 
a little bit laid on, laid on with a trowel as well. It, 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 it's as though he'd kind of reinforce his Jewishness. Um, yeah. Well, but, um, but indeed, it's, it's also where the Gentile shop, let's not forget. I mean, it was, it was the, the archetypal shopping mall, or mall, um, I, I dare say. It was one of the busiest markets in, in the East End. So, yeah, Jews may have lived there, but, and Jews may have traded there, but um, a significant number of Gentiles crammed into those streets as well on market day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, true, true, right. true enough. Why do you think they took him to formally identify the body when the inquest was already over? I think that's probably just to, just to make sure that, um, you know, was this the person that you saw? They needed to be absolutely sure that he hadn't seen another woman. Um, uh, because he didn't, he, didn't describe what, he didn't describe what Kelly was wearing, which is, um, you know, perhaps a bit conspicuous. So maybe that, that's one of the reasons why they decided to... Uh, uh, arranged for a morgue identification because he was so full of, oh, Mr. Astrakhan looked like this, but nothing nothing about what Kelly was wearing. True, yeah. true. But, I mean, the state Kelly was in, it's doubtful whether he'd been able to identify her anyway. No. And after her death, it was even worse. Oh, I see what you mean, Chris. I, mean. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were referring to a, dr- <laughs> a drunkenness or something. No, um, yeah, well, quite. But, uh, but nonetheless, you know... Um, her sort of crowning glory was her hair. Um, if he was that close to her, then, uh, you know, as I said last week, there were other bits or other parts of the body that um, someone familiar uh, would be able to recognise. So, you know, God forbid, I'm not sure I could, could recognise my friends in a similar mm. state uh, if, if, yeah. if I were ever called upon to do that. Um, yeah. So it doesn't need to just, you know, know the face uh, to, to recognise body on a slab, unfortunately. We haven't uh, found a press report that had Lewis's testimony in it um, prior to Hutchinson coming forward yet, have we? Meaning that Ben is still under the assumption that he became aware of the scant details of Lewis's inquest testimony by word of mouth rather than actually reading about it in the newspaper. Word of, word of mouth, most probably, or as an alternative, attendance at the inquest, or not even attendance at the inquest, just sort of joining the masses around Shoreditch Mortuary uh, and noticing that, oh, that, hang on, that's Sarah Lewis going in there. That's, that's the woman who passed me. Uh, oh, she's bound to mention the, uh, the encounter with me, something like that. And we, also, we know that uh, almost certain that Lewis, Lewis's account was the one that was overheard and parroted by, uh, by Mrs. Kennedy. So obviously it was doing the rounds. And we know from things like uh, Leather Apron and uh, John Pizer that, that sort of rumour and, uh, and, and innuendo and um, sinister descriptions, they really travelled through the, through the populace like sort of wildfire, really. So it's... Uh, we also had a rather, intri- rather intriguing little press snippet. I think, I think it was in the Star, but uh, Chris will probably correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which was published, I think, the day after the Kelly murder, which, which says that... Mrs. McCarthy had been told to keep quiet by the police because she may well have seen the killer leave Miller's Court. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, now whether this, now, whether this was just saying, um, you know, some sort of idle comment. Oh, oh my God, I was up at that time. You know, if I only had looked through the window, I may well have seen him leave the court. Yeah, and and this, you know, the police said you better keep quiet about that, or whether, um, or, or whether she did. Uh, the way it comes across in the paper is maybe she knew something and maybe the police were telling her to keep quiet. And, and of course, the killer, you know, learning of that could have thought, oh, bugger, you know. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. 
And of course, you know, Hutchinson noticeably says, I left the corner of Miller's Court, doesn't he? In, in, uh, I think it's in his police statement. Yeah, yeah. Left the corner of Miller's Court at, at three. So it's uh, that, if anything, I mean, aside from Lewis's testimony and, and, and the, the, the inflation of that into Mrs. Kelleher and Kennedy and uh, Keeler or whatever, um, there is this little nugget which... Uh, which I think would have put more of the fear of God into um, a putative Hutchinson of Ripper than, than, than maybe even the Lewis testimony. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as, as I say, I mean, uh, Lewis, I didn't think it was just a major catalyst, but she needn't have been the only one. I mean, uh, as I say, you know, I'm sure, ser- I mean, we know that serial killers adapt as they learn information, and, uh, and they're inquisitive. They sort of want to know what the police know, and... Uh, and if there's any suggestion that, uh, that a witness might have seen them and is keeping quiet, I mean, there's nothing, nothing breeds fear more than sort of uncertainty. So McCarthy, Mrs. McCarthy's uh, uh, a little press nugget, uh, again, might have uh, put the fear of God into him a little bit. Okay, anything else? Nope. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for being on today, and we'll call that a show. And that was RipperCast, episode 34, Hutchison, Wheel and Me Sixpence. I want to thank Gareth Williams, Ben Holm, Robert McLaughlin, Chris Scott, Howard Brown, and Allie Ryder for being on the show today. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, and after this episode, we will no longer be available at rippernet.com. We are moving over to casebook.org's website and server with a brand new podcast section, So the podcast feed from now on will be coming from casebook.org. Hopefully this is a seamless transition, and hopefully all of you iTunes subscribers out there won't encounter any problems. But just in case there's a broken RSS feed, you'll want to visit us at www.casebook.org to download the new episodes. We will be recording on December 7th and have that show out a day or two later, and also we'll be recording another show on December 14th. Now, hopefully everything will be seamless. You won't even notice a change. But just in case there's any problems, you can find me and ask me any questions at www.casebook.org. You'll still be able to email the show at our normal email address, rippernet at mac.com. So to repeat, from now on, our podcast is going to be hosted by casebook.org. There is a possibility that there will be a broken RSS feed in the iTunes Music Store. In that event... Please come to casebook.org to get your show. All right? Good. And I do want to thank everybody out there who subscribes and listens to the show. And we'll see you here in about two weeks.